Welcome to another episode and another season of Lehigh Insider. We are in season two of Lehigh Insider. Can you believe we've made it this long? There's so many exciting things planned for this season. So I'm so happy that you decided to join us again. And I hope you will continue down the line. Before today's episode, I am joined by the most special guest. Big celebrities with us today. I am sitting down with President Helbley to talk about his experience with being president, ask him some questions about high policy and plans for the future it's a great episode every single question you've ever had is answered in this episode so i hope you enjoy it and i'll talk to you again at the end here's president helpley what an honor to be sitting across from the king of the Lehigh Kingdom, President Helpley. It's like, great to see you, Benor. Mm-hmm. I hardly think of myself as the king of the kingdom, but I it's mean, great to be here with if you. If we had to have a king of the kingdom, it would be you. Uh, okay. <laughs> Fair point. Yes. So welcome to the show, President Helpley. It's a pleasure to be here, Benor. <laughs> well, I have a million questions for you. Okay. And time goes really quickly, so I'm just going to get into it. So, from before Lehigh, you're a Lehigh alum. That is correct. So, I'm going to ask you a very boring, basic question that I know you've been asked a million times. How has Lehigh changed since you attended it back in 1982 you graduated? Yes, that's okay. such a long time ago. But <laughs> it is a question I'm asked often. You're absolutely right on that. But it's not a question I get tired of answering because I think it's it's just a beautiful combination of things that have remained unchanged in really important ways and then dynamic and positive change in so many others. So what do I mean by that? Well, the physical beauty of the campus hasn't changed. Mm. And in fact, I will tell you in many ways it's been enhanced. It was beautiful then and it truly is now and it feels very collegiate and academic and scholarly to me. And I love the fact that that hasn't changed. Other thing that hasn't changed that I think is even more important than the physical beauty of the campus is the relationship between the faculty and the staff and the students. But what's changed? The composition of the student body has changed Mm. in such a dramatic and exciting way. The campus was pretty homogeneous when I was a student on all possible dimensions. There were not many students of color. There were not many international students. And there were not many women. So Mm. positive change in the student community that I think is really exciting. New academic programs that didn't exist when I was a student, expansion of research, addition of mountaintop campus, development, all those things are great. And a much, much better relationship with the city of Bethlehem, Mm. particularly South Bethlehem. So nothing's changed for the worse then, all for the better. Nothing's changed for the worse. Um, It's more expensive Mm. than it was. So Mm -hmm. I think access and affordability is one of the single biggest issues facing higher education and we've really aggressively worked to raise money for financial aid it's an area we ask our alumni and friends to help us with if we want to continue to support a socioeconomically diverse student community and i think that is essential Mm -hmm. for colleges and universities in this country we need to continue to push on that point so that's something that's changed for the negative there are good reasons for it but the cost has moved in a direction that I, where I'm deeply concerned about the ability of middle class and lower middle class families to afford an education at a place like Lehigh. And that's not to anyone's benefit. Every year when the tuition is increased, people get crazy about it yes. and there are articles written about it. You say there are good reasons. 
I think maybe people would be interested to know, as far as you can say, what some of those good reasons might be. Sure. I mean, the, the short list is, number one, 50 years ago, we didn't pay faculty and staff, but particularly faculty, a wage that was close to competitive with mm. the private sector. We do a much better job of doing that now. And so we have taken steps to try and compensate our faculty to get the best of them to stay, number one. Number two, we've expanded the support we put in place for students on so many different dimensions. That has cost associated with it. We are much more generous in providing financial aid. We have a much broader socioeconomic spectrum in our student community. We've raised some money from alumni to endow scholarships, but some of it we generate out of the operating budget, so that has an associated cost. And then the regulatory environment has changed dramatically, and whether it's student conduct or research management or just offices that have to make sure we are complying with the rules and regulations of the federal and state government, I don't think any of that is a bad thing, but that adds cost. So that's, that's the challenge. Those mm -hmm. are the drivers. Yeah, and it's very constant, too, every year. Like, do you think there's a, a sort of end goal where Lehigh might not need any more money, or, or are we potentially going to keep seeing increases up until forever? I would love to say that there'll be a point where we won't see tuition increases, mm -hmm. but I think the reality is for the foreseeable future that's going to continue to happen. I mean, look at some of the bills that we have to pay. Cost of food go up every year. Cost of energy go up every year. Cost of health care for our employees go up every year. Cost of health care for our students goes up every year. And so where does that revenue come from? We, this past year, were very conscious of the impact of a tuition increase on families in a period of inflation that we have not seen mm -hmm. in 40 years. Inflationary pressures the past year are the highest that they've been since the early 1970s. And so our increase in tuition and fees, while not nothing, 3.5% overall is our smallest increase, not counting the pandemic year when we kept mm. costs flat, mm. in at least seven or eight years and well below the average price increase for our peer institutions. We are not a leader. We are a lagger amongst our peers. And despite that, we had one of the lowest increases in tuition and room and board this past year. And we made the decision to do that very intentionally because we know this is a really challenging time for families. What does that mean? It means that when students ask me, can you invest more in X? We made a decision to manage the revenue and keep money right, and not bring in more tuition revenue. It means that we have to make even more choices about efficient operation, and we're looking for ways to do that. I'm committed to doing everything we can to keep this affordable for our student community, but I don't see us being in a position where we can say zero tuition increase yeah. in the near future. It's just simply not feasible for an institution of our size and scale. Back to pre-President Joseph Helpley, before we get into Lehigh stuff. I'm curious about your transition from chemical engineering to higher education administration. And for you, the transition is very clear because you were a research scientist for a long time. And then you rejoined higher education, but as a professor, also a dean, and that before you became the provost. So it was very like you were still an engineer, still in science, and then you went into more administrative duties. Yep. So I guess my first question is why? Were you watching all the administrators and going, I can do that? Absolutely, unequivocally, <laughs> no. One of the things I, I say often to students, and I, 
I still advise undergraduate students when I can, formally, informally. And one of the things I say often is the best piece of advice I can give you is be open to opportunity, be open to possibility. None of this was mapped out. And so it looks linear if you put it on a piece of paper and look at the progression. But if you think about the specifics of the steps, none of them necessarily would lead to the next one other than in the later stages of my career mm. going from dean to provost to president. I got a PhD because Lehigh faculty encouraged me to look at that opportunity. I had no idea what graduate school was when they convinced me that I had skills in the inquisitive nature that might make this a good step in my career. I said, fine, I'll, I'll go get a master's degree. And they very patiently explained to me why I might think about a PhD instead. Mm. When I went to graduate school, I remember one day standing up in my lab at MIT and saying to all of my lab mates, this was in a lab of about 20 people, after a particularly frustrating experiment, <laughs> I will never be a professor. I don't know why anyone would want to be a professor. We're pursuing such small-scale incremental advances I want to work at a company that's developing technology that will make a difference in people's lives tomorrow. And I wow. meant it. I got my PhD and I went to work in the private sector. I worked for a company that did environmental research and environmental technology development for eight years. It's pretty unusual, highly unusual for someone who spends that much time in industry to come back to the university as a tenure-track professor teaching and running a research lab. But the reason I did it is after seven or eight years of being in the private sector and running a lab, having people reporting to me, I thought, you know, I actually want to work with students. I miss that intellectual curiosity and energy that students bring. So I started interviewing, took an academic position, and I took that academic position saying to my colleagues, I want to teach and do research. I want to be in the classroom. I do not want <laughs> to be a manager or an administrator. So it shows you, Benor, what happens when you make pronouncements that you will yeah. never do something. <laughs> a year in, they, my colleagues in my new department said, you look as if you're good with people and you've got administrative experience. Would you manage our graduate program? Okay, fine. Two years later, there was a transition in the department chair and someone said, you, the department would really like you to consider being department chair. I'd been there three years at that point. But I thought, if I want there to be change, I can say no and leave it to somebody else, or I can try and lead that change. So mm -hmm. I said yes. And then at that point, after being department chair, I actually had a departure, and I went to Washington and worked in the U.S. Senate as a staffer for a year, not a step you take if you want to be a university president or provost. But I did it because I was deeply interested in the intersection between technology and policy because my work on air quality depended upon it. I wanted to know how the Senate factored scientific input into the legislative process. I wanted to see if politics were as polarized as the papers said they were. And so it was an eye-opening experience I never expected to move on to be a dean at that point. I thought I'd be going back to the University of Connecticut to run my lab and teach. But Dartmouth called. And, and you answered. And I answered. <laughs> you sound fearless, especially with the going to Senate. I mean, like, as early as college, like as early as undergrad, people have locked in and 
it gets harder and harder both external forces and even internally to decide to move into something else, even if it feels like the right thing to do. It's like when something gets comfortable like that, you're like, I'm going to sun it. I want to see how that works without considering what you might be giving up. Yeah, I I thought about when I was giving up, typically when a professor goes on sabbatical, Mm -hmm. if you're a scientist or an engineer, you'll go to another lab, you'll write research grant proposals, you'll write technical journal articles, so you'll focus on your research you might try and develop a new course and then you bring that back to your home university. I wanted to do something completely different because I just felt fundamentally that the scientific community, if we're gonna tackle problems like sustainability and access to energy, if we're gonna tackle problems like climate change, the politicians need scientists and engineers helping shape and scope what's possible policy-wise and carrying that message forward. And I believed in it so strongly that I wanted to be part of it and learn how the process works. Half of my academic colleagues thought I had completely lost my mind. <laughs> Why would you not go to Stanford or Berkeley or another lab doing leading work in climate science? The other half looked at me with astonishment and said, what a brilliant idea to do something really interesting and meaningful. It was a great experience for me. I learned a lot being there that year. And so I highly recommend taking these orthogonal tours in your career. (laughs) So I've I've told students I have, I'm unusual. I have academic experience. I have public sector Mm -hmm. experience in the government and I have private sector experience. And And Spanish. And un poquito de espanol, (laughs) yes, in Spanish. So the worlds are all very different. Okay, well, now this whole side of thing is still just heavy on my mind. Uh Uh-huh. Can you just tell me briefly general things that you learned from being in the Senate about maybe less about policy because that's what you've answered, but more about just people and life. Does you think anything you learned from there, I imagine it does carry you into new positions and now in an administrative position? That's a really insightful question, Benor. And the, an- <laughs> the answer is absolutely yes. One of the things I, so I, I worked on Joe Lieberman's staff I watched John McCain operate. There was a young Democratic senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, who had the office right next door, who was elected in the year (laughs) that I was there, and he was on the Energy and Commerce Committee Mm. at the same time that uh, Joe Lieberman was on the committee, Hillary Clinton was on that committee, and I got to watch politicians who were very skilled, rhetorically different communicators, but very skilled state their principles, stick to their principles, and not adjust their message when the audience changed. And that that was really a lesson was hammered home for me that I used to think they were lazy, and then I realized how important it was to be consistent in what you say, because if I say one thing to you today and a different version of that to a different audience tomorrow, people are going to think that you're disingenuous and inconsistent. And that was a really clear lesson, and that's something I think about all the time in my role as a communicator, as a dean, as a provost, and as a president. That's hard, though. I mean, part of being a politician, what do I know about being a politician? My guess is your people should like you. And when you're talking to different groups, and you know something might not really land well with one group, and they're not going to receive it well, but you have to keep that consistent message and not change what you're saying depending on the audience. Yeah, that's hard. You can, I mean, you can express it differently, but it has mm. to be the same message. And in my view is that fundamentally people respect honesty. And so they may not like you. Do I want people to like the job (laughs) I'm doing 
and engage with me personally? Absolutely, no question. But what I mostly want them to believe, even more important, is that I have the best long-term interests of this university and this community in mind. Resources are limited. Differences of opinion will exist. Decisions need to be made. And you may not like the decision that I'm making or what I'm saying, but I want you to trust that I did it with the best interests of this university in mind and applied my best judgment and my experience in that judgment to make that decision. And so I will try to say to people who will ask a question, I, I understand why you're asking that. I know what you would like me to say, but uh, unfortunately I, I can't do that. And here's why I think the decision is gonna be different. I always say I'm open to more input. I am. I'm always open to being convinced otherwise if there's mm. a cogent argument. But I also don't want to be misleading and suggest I'm considering something if I've decided that's not a direction this university can move. That's a fine line to walk, but I think the community deserves that. It's how I want yeah. to be treated. Okay. For resident healthy, let's get into the president stuff. We'll ease in. Okay. There was a global search yes. for a new president. Why you? What qualities about yourself do you think make you a good president? Is that easing in? Maybe no. It's not easing <laughs> in. I mean, I, and honestly, I could deflect the question and say, well, you'd have to ask the members of the search committee. But I know this university, and I think leadership requires someone who is a good communicator, someone who, when I say good communicator, is absolutely a thoughtful and deliberate and intentional and reflective listener. I think it is incumbent upon every university leader to really make sure they are hearing many voices in their community. You can't agree with every voice, but getting that input and synthesizing it and making sure those communities know they're being heard, I think that's hugely important. And it's something that's important to me. So it felt to me as if there was a good match between what Lehigh needed and my approach to higher ed administration. Right. And then it's a homecoming. And there's something special about being an alumnus. So let's talk about the work you do as a president, which, first of all, to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure I know what exactly it is you do. I don't know if it's like a Queen of England situation where you're just the face of the school, but someone else is doing all the policy making, or if you're just coming up with ideas. How much power do you have? Because there's so many other administrative positions. Like, what do you do? So that I mean, that's actually it's a really insightful <laughs> question, right? So, the provost is the chief operating officer, and I say this having been a provost. And so, what does that mean? It means the provost makes final decisions about budget and budget allocation. And the provost oversees the academic deans, the allocation of resources to the schools, and the processes that approve new academic programs and grant tenure. And so that is a lot of operational responsibility. But the president's responsibilities are to set direction, right, to, lead, to decide which issues are the big issues that need to be addressed to sell those ideas to the relevant communities on campus, right? So strategic planning is something that I started talking about from the moment I arrived. The provost and the vice president for strategic projects and initiatives, Christine Cook, will lead the process. But we are doing that because it was a partnership with the two of them, but because the president identified the need to do this 
and put in place the overall structure and said, here are the goals that I think we need to accomplish. It's not carved in a tablet when the president says that in a healthy organization. Mm. Let's talk about it. Pros, cons, is this right? What other ideas might we have? Is this the right direction? And it's evolved significantly Mm. from the first time I spoke about it. So not a dictator. Absolutely not. (laughs) Right? So the president can set that direction, set the charge, put the groups in place to execute, but it is is shared governance. There are senior administrators. There is the faculty senate and also we want to engage with student leadership when we can so it is a collaborative enterprise but the president gets to set the policy direction let's talk about the interdisciplinary programs and the Uh work you're doing there your goal is i mean you said one of your goals that you mentioned during your inauguration was to expand them by 50 percent expand the existing intercollege programs the Mm -hmm. three of them that exist by 50 percent well i've heard some rumors Okay, (laughs) let me hear it. Okay, some students are not happy with some of these changes, potential changes made to their program. Some may say that, you know, it's small size and inaccessibility is part of what makes it special. Mm -hmm. And if it becomes more accessible, less rigorous, bigger in size, that might negatively impact or take away from what made it special in the first place. Mm So do you disagree? I understand the concern, and Mm -hmm. I've heard it, um, and I'll acknowledge it, but I view it differently. I think, first, if we look at the numbers, taking a program from 40 students, say, in a cohort, to 60 students is not going from 40 students to 400 or 4,000 students. A group of 60, it's actually the standard size of a cohort in many graduate programs, business programs in particular, can get to know one another and work as a cohesive unit. The rigor of the program cannot and will not change. Implicit in that concern is a question of resources. And it's going to be a work in progress, right? Which we have to figure it out as we go along. But I have said that I am committed and the provost is committed to providing the resources to these programs, which means as they grow, the resources will grow so we can staff them and provide the advising, the mentorship, mm. and the teaching that they need. So that is a commitment to maintain or even increase and improve the quality of the program. One of the things I've observed at Lehigh is that I think we're a little bit siloed for a university of our size more than I expected. This surprised me. We have a tremendous number of really high-quality programs. And it has felt to me in different areas as if that program and those who are in the program want to keep its light hidden under a bushel, Mm. right? Like They want to protect it and nurture it because they built something really special. Mm. And I think that's great. But what it means is we have programs that are similar all over the university and the power for the university And the advantage for the most number of students would be if we removed the bushels, allowed the programs that are working in a similar area to interact more fluidly and more extensively and made this an opportunity available to a much greater number of students. Doesn't mean turning IBE into a program with 600 students, Mm. but we have room to expand. I'm absolutely confident of that. And then find ways to give elements of that experience to every Lehigh student. So you can come here and major in philosophy and still take courses in whether it's coding or design thinking 
or data science and courses in whether it's accounting or finance or basic principles of business. So you learn something about how organizations allocate capital and make decisions. You learn something about the inherent biases and limitations in technology and how it's developed and can be deployed. And you learn the questioning about community and culture and history that comes from studying the arts and humanities. Major in any one of them, that exposure without being part of an intercollege program, I, I think would be a phenomenal opportunity for any student. And mm. as I said earlier, it'd leave you incredibly well prepared to engage the world, to change the world. Um, I want to talk about overall expansion. Uh-huh. This is not a new thing. We had Path to Prominence with President Simon, mm-hmm. and now you're working on your own expansions, you know, new colleges, e.g. College of Health. I don't know if this is directly tied to the higher acceptance rate that we've seen recently, but I think I'll ask a different question about the higher acceptance rate. My first question about the overall expansion of Lehigh, what do you have to say about concerns that such efforts further push into the South Bethlehem neighborhoods that are already burdened with lack of space and parking? Because I know you've already said that you care a lot about the community, mm-hmm. but what happens when all the community is just Lehigh? Right. I, I don't think it's great for anyone. I don't think it's great for South Bethlehem. I don't think it's great for Lehigh if South Bethlehem is Lehigh. If South Bethlehem is an extension of Lehigh, we failed. I see South Bethlehem now as an incredibly vibrant, culturally rich, diverse, socioeconomically diverse, accessible city in ways that are really exciting. There is housing that, not Lehigh, private developers have built around campus that is new housing, and it has displaced some businesses that have been there, and that is at a cost. The benefit is it brings people into the inner city, the inner South Bethlehem city, who will be supporting the grocery store, the restaurants, the smaller businesses that are there, and providing jobs Mm -hmm. for individuals in the community. I do not want to see Lehigh take over South Bethlehem, but I think there are ways, there will always be tension, there will always be discussion and back and forth. But I'm committed and we're committed to doing this in partnership. I I can't, it has come such a long way from the days when I was here as a student, when Bethlehem Steel was in its dying days, when housing was not fully occupied, when a railroad spur, the Greenway was a live railroad track when I was a student. And there were times when I'd go running to South Bethlehem where I would have to pause and wait for the freight train to cut right across New Street, right across the middle of South Bethlehem. There were not places in South Bethlehem that students would patronize and people from the community would not come up on campus. Mm. I have seen, it's not perfect, but on Sunday afternoons in the grove that sits right in front of Alumni Memorial, I have seen families who are clearly from the community sitting and having a picnic on the lawn. I have seen, I can't tell you how many people from the community taking prom photos or quinceanera photos on the steps of Alumni Memorial. I see people from the community at sporting events and at the art museum. Will Crow, the director of LUAG, the Lehigh University Art Gallery, is very intentionally working with the community to have representational art that reflects the community and even doing things like putting it out on the Greenway. The university has invested in support, including Southside ambassadors for the community. I, I, I it's not perfect. There will always be tension. 
but we're trying to do this in partnership with the city in a really thoughtful way. I would like there to be a, a vibrant, ethnic, diverse South Bethlehem that's an important part of what Lehigh community gets to experience, that is a place where Lehigh students and faculty can live, and the campus is a place where community members can come and learn and reflect and relax. Well, still on expansion. Lehigh is and has previously been known for its size, mm-hmm. right? I think, I know there are people yep. who chose Lehigh because of that size. With expanding it, do you care at all about how that might affect the university's reputation and the people who are here for what is already existing rather than how far we can take it? Yes, but the growth that is was planned as part of Path to Prominence, which we have slowed substantially. Mm-hmm. So we're still growing, but we've slowed that growth substantially. Mm. And so uh, I'm going to answer the question this way, and it's honest uh, and transparent. We got a little bit out over our skis, I think. We started expanding the undergraduate student body rapidly before we had put the support in place to build the applicant pool accordingly. So you started to ask but didn't finish the question about admissions rates, right? They were 49% two years ago. Last year, they were 45 or 46%. This year, they were 37%. So mm. we're keeping the class size fixed. And we are, for a period of time, the incoming class size fixed while we are working on building the pool. I think, you know, I, I hear about this a lot. I can argue and show you data that will say the quality of the class has been absolutely unchanged even when the admission rate was 49%, right? But the perception externally is that something changed and quality suffered, and that is deeply concerning to me. We are moving in a direction that is restoring our admit rate to where it has been historically, high 20s to low 30s. It's not an absolute goal to get there, but I think it's going to happen naturally if we build the applicant pool that's of a sufficient size to support the student body we want to grow to. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's how we're thinking about that. So this year's incoming class, class of 2026, is the same as the size of the incoming class of 2025. The class of 2027 incoming next year will likely also be the same size, and then we will reevaluate. Mm. I still think we will ultimately get to about 6,000 undergraduate students, which was the goal, but it's not going to happen in two years. It might be more like six or seven years, mm. and that will give us the time to build the infrastructure mm-hmm. on all levels to support it. Anytime there's growth through anxiety in an institution yeah, about yeah. change and what it will mean, my commitment is that this is going to remain a student-centered institution. That cannot change. So we have to do this again slowly and thoughtfully to make sure we preserve that value that's core to Lehigh. Change is always hard, period. Mm -hmm. Change for humans is hard. Change in any organization is hard. If we do it at the right pace, we can adjust as we go along. And the campus will hear me saying over and over again, our values are not changing. Our commitment to the individual student and the individual employee in that experience is not changing There'll be bumps along the road, and when problems arise, you should let us know, and we will address them. But we're going to get there, and my commitment is the experience will be even richer and even better with a larger and more vibrant community. I heard or saw somewhere that Lehigh has seen a drop in rankings. So Lehigh is ranked in the high 40s by U.S. News and World Report, and Mm -hmm. that's higher than it was two decades ago. 
I'm aware of it, but I'm also going to tell you honestly. Aware of a drop? Aware that it's gone from being in the 30s a few oh, decades okay. ago, high 30s, right, to 48 or 49 this past year. So I'm aware mm-hmm. of that. And it's been at that level, of high 40s for several years. But I refuse to make decisions that are chasing the rankings. I want us to make decisions that speak That's to the education and research opportunity that our students need. I want yeah. us to invest in points of distinction and do what we think is right. And over time, I am confident that the ratings will recognize what it is that Mm. we're doing, but it may not be till well beyond my tenure as president. U.S. News and World Report is what everyone focuses on, but the immediate response I have when people have asked me that question is, I acknowledge that and the challenge. I'm not not shying away from it. Have you seen the Georgetown Center for Education and the Workforce study of 4,500 post-secondary institutions that they released in February of this year? They looked at 4,500 colleges, universities, and second trade schools, community colleges, the whole range in this country for return on investment at 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and 40-year periods, right? 4,500. Lehigh ranked 20-year ROI, 21st in the country, 21. And for, they had an interesting measure, percent of graduates who out-earn a high school graduate. Mm. And it's a, it's a strange number, mm. but it's meant to address directly the question, is college worth it? Yeah. Is there a financial payoff or should I just get a job right out of high school? Lehigh ranked ninth nationally, ninth. So U.S. News and World Report is a reputation measure where you've got presidents and provosts who are looking at their notion of the university and the research impact it has based on things that they knew 30 or 40 years ago when they were graduate students and have no way of really knowing what's happening on this or any other campus on a day-to-day basis. The Georgetown study has data, objective numerical data. I think ninth out of 4,500 is something we should be proud of and celebrating. Last question about expansion, I think. I want to know how these expansion efforts tie into, you've kind of answered this, tie into diversity efforts, but specifically, because I saw an interview you did with the Brown and White last May, where you were asked about your plans to put tangible action behind Lehigh's commitments to increase diversity and inclusion on campus, if you remember that. And you said, well, which I understand, because it was May, and you didn't start until August. But your response was basically that you need to first walk the campus, talk to the community, figure out what is currently going on. And you've done a lot of walking and talking, I can see. Right. So what now? What's the tangible answer? The bigger we get, the more communities we reach out to to recruit students, the more opportunity we have to truly build a diverse community and support a diverse community. I think that's essential. And I also think, I'll come back to what I said earlier, it is incumbent upon me and the leadership to be talking about community and these principles of community all the time and our aspiration of being a community that supports and engages absolutely every individual. Last question about President Helpley. What are some challenges you face within the position or things you don't enjoy as much? You love it all. I love it all. No, you can't I say that. <laughs> I can't say that. I love it all. Um, I, I mean, I true. I enjoy learning about the university. I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy trying to get a better sense of where the challenges lie and taking steps to address them. What do I like 
less. I mean, there are a lot of meetings <laughs> in my role and I'm an engineer, I'm a data guy, I'm a runner, I'm a doer. And so many times I would rather be out working on a solution than talking the about meetings. the path to get there. But the meetings are essential. Um, you know, what do I not like? I will be honest and say that I, this was true when I was provost, um, particularly in the COVID area. It's, era, it's true as president. There are people who are unhappy with decisions that the university makes, and I don't mind those decisions being expressed, but sometimes they are scathing and personal mm. uh, and even hateful, and no one likes being the recipient of that. I mean, it, it, it is what it is. It's unfortunate. I would like this to be the kind of community where that doesn't happen between one another, among the student community, students, faculty, staff, administration, right? To recognize at the end of the day, we may have differences of opinion, but we have a shared objective and shared goals. Well, enough about President Helvely. Let's talk about Joe. Okay. There is nothing interesting there. <laughs> so, first of all, I have to talk about, obviously, your running, because mm -hmm. you've been a runner for a very long time. And, I don't know, just... just Talk about talk about anything about running. I feel like runners always have some sort of deep connection to running, and it's a very spiritual experience that has changed your life or something. What is it about for you? Yes, you said it well. <laughs> I think for me it was. <laughs> I, I love sports, and when I was in high school, I found I was on the basketball team for a year, mm. and found that my friends and classmates were all growing, and I was not. <laughs> So I'm not a height that's particularly well-suited <laughs> to being a basketball player. And I also found that the thing I liked that I did better than everybody else were the drills where you were sprinting mm. you know, to the quarter line, to the mid-court line, three-quarter, and then to the opposite baseline. So I liked the running part. So I, my father had been saying, just he was a very quiet person, a man of few words, but he'd say, why don't you join the track team? Why don't you join the track team? Why don't you join? <laughs> so I did. And once I started down that path, and once I found that I was actually fast and capable of winning races and moving at a pace that I never thought was possible, it really became enjoyable as a competitive pursuit. So I was on the cross-country team here for two years. Stopped. At Lehigh? At Lehigh, yeah. Oh. Yes. Wow. Yep. Congrats. Thanks. <laughs> My freshman year, I didn't compete. I went to some practices, but I got injured before classes ever started. Mm. My sophomore year, I competed the whole year. And at the end of that, I decided between chemical engineering and wanting to be a griffin, I, I couldn't manage it all. So I stopped. It I is a huge commitment being it, a college athlete. It is. It's made me from that day extraordinarily impressed by and respectful of our yes. student athletes yes. and what they're able to do. But I continued running through graduate school. I continued running after I got married and had children. And it was always just to stay in shape. And it's to let my mind wander. Mm. And it really is, in, in many ways, a spiritual experience, especially early in the morning when the sun's just starting to rise and there's no one out and the birds are chirping and you've got your senses are attuned to the environment in a different way. I find I do some of my best thinking if I'm out running on my own. And when I'm with others, it's just a really relaxing social engagement. Then mm. about 10 years ago, I started getting serious again. And so I now run marathons and half marathons and try and do a couple of those a year and compete as best I can. 
Wow, you just marketed that really well. I think people are going to show up to the Tuesday. I hope so. Six thirty now. I hope so. <laughs> but other than running, what else do you like to do? Love to cook. I did know that. Yes. I love to cook. So I met my wife in graduate school. We were both graduate students with very little income between us. <laughs> Couldn't afford to, we could go to second run movies. So she was at MIT? She was at MIT as well. Oh, wow. So we could go to... a couple of nerds and loves. Thank you, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell her you said that. (laughs) (laughs) But we both like to eat, we both Mm. like to cook, and we started cooking for one another. And then it just became kind of a, a, a passion, a hobby, a habit. So I still love cooking i love having people over for dinner and cooking dinner we you know, we love hosting family holidays it's so it's just a lot of fun for us well i'm happy you brought up your wife because i was going to ask you that specific question about how you met and the second question to that was going to be how did you know she was the one for you wow that's a deeply <laughs> personal question uh it it didn't take long it really didn't take long. I met her in graduate school, and she I still remember what she was wearing and where she oh. was sitting the first time we met one another. It was a group of people going to see the Boston Pops on the Esplanade in Boston, so it was m- after my first year at MIT. But I remember just talking with her a little bit, and she was clearly smart, funny, competitive in an athletic (laughs) sense um and and then i got to meet her family and it felt like being with my own family in terms of how they interacted Mm. with one another it felt like home and it happened pretty quickly oh that is so special i'm trying to really get it as much in now because i don't i know you don't want to talk about your family last question about your family okay while i while i have you um you have three adult children that is correct i just want to know about your experience with being a dad and how it has changed as your children have become adults so from being an, a dad of children to a dad of adults it's it's a good and, it, and it's a personal question but oh, I'll, there you I'll, go. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer it honestly Thank you. i was chatting with scott burden earlier today mm. and i just, you know, he asked me about it, and I said it's it's cliche, but it's absolutely true that being becoming a parent is a transform it's a life-changing experience. It truly is. And to be part of their journey through childhood into adults is really special. To be able to interact with them now as peers is the wrong word, but as fully formed adults who are pursuing their own lives and their own careers and have their own interests so we can have conversations about the state of the world mm-hmm. as right on an on an on an equal intellectual level they are thoughtful and well read and have perspectives that don't always agree with mine or my wife and i truly love that well i'll leave this alone before you get uncomfortable <laughs> thank, thank you but you have an incredible job that you love Great family, people love you. How do you define success and do you think you're there yet? Do you feel successful? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. Here, you know, I I I have aspirations and ambitions for this university in terms of community, in terms of our academic program, in terms of our engagement with the city of South Bethlehem. I think it's a great place and it could be a really special place. 
if we get there, even though there will always be work to do, then I'll consider myself successful. For my last question, I just want you to speak directly to our listeners. Leave them a message. What do you have to say as king of Lehigh to all your subjects? <laughs> I told you I don't really like that framing, <laughs> but thank you. I, I, I think so, number one, uh, I'm going to say something about intellectual engagement. I think I would truly encourage everyone, and this is students, but faculty and staff, to engage deeply as you can across difference. And so I mean across personal difference, learn from someone who's got a very different background and experience from you, take advantage of the fact that we're part of this incredible community, and across academic difference. So the engineering students out there, take Spanish classes, take English classes, study literature, take philosophy. To the business students, take engineering and take religion. And to the religion students, think about learning to code, take a class in design thinking, understand basic business principles. That kind of exposure that really pushes you outside your comfort zone, I promise you will be hugely beneficial and even life-altering. And the second thing I, I would say is always be mindful of this community. Right? We are one, we often think about being different communities within this community. We are one Lehigh community. At the end of the day, after you graduate, when you're walking through an airport with a Lehigh cap or a Lehigh t-shirt and you run into another person doing the same, you're not going to think about whether they were in my Greek organization or on my athletic team or in my major or in my club or in my living group. You immediately have that bond, that connection, and that shared experience. Try and not only hold on to that, but act on that when you're here as students because this is a wonderful chance you have to learn from so many different people Take advantage of it. Wow. That's a beautiful ending to what has been a beautiful conversation. I've had you for an hour longer than we planned. Hope that's okay with you. It's too late now, <laughs> right? But I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. You, you ask great questions. And, and maybe if I get to ask the last question, tell me what your aspirations are for Lehigh. What would you like to see this campus be a decade from now when you come back for your 10th reunion? Well, I think both of us have pretty similar ideas when it comes to that because I am also committed and caring about the community itself. Lucky for me, you're the one who has to figure that out. I can just watch it happen. But even with me being a Griffin and um, just like with even with this podcast, like I always want to see people connect with each other and think about ways that we can make that happen. So ideally for me coming back, I just want to see everyone happy and connected. So I'm counting on you to do that. When I come back, I'll ask, what did he do about that? That's fair. <laughs> and I'm counting on you and your classmates to stay engaged as alumni because it awesome. is the engagement of our alumni, particularly the younger alumni, the newer classes, who can help us help the students see the possibility for this university and move it in the direction we all hope it will go. So you've got a deal if I can count on you as well. <laughs> deal. We got it. Right. Well, this has been... President Helpley, first episode of the semester. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Benar. Wonderful talking <laughs> with you, and I look forward to seeing you around campus. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Lehigh Insider will be back to you in two weeks. Catch us every other Friday on the Brown and White 
Spotify. Lehigh Insider is created by Benor Ayambim and produced by The Brown and White with music produced by DJ Zen. Find Lehigh Insider on Instagram for bonus exclusive content at Lehigh Insider. And while you're there, follow The Brown and White at LU Brown White on Instagram. You can also visit our website at www.thebrownandwhite/lehighinsider. This has been Benor Ayambem, and I will see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye.